because there was something really super satisfying and powerful about working with you know 100 musicians on a stage emoting all at once i mean i know this is like a this totally cliche to say this but i mean it, it really is it's a powerful thing national orchestral institute national orchestral institute national orchestral institute Welcome to the National Orchestral Institute and Festival's podcast series. I'm your host, Robert Lintott. Throughout this year's edition of NOI at the Clarice, I will be sitting down with visiting artists, administrators, composers, and participants in the festival for brief question and answer sessions. Today I continue my conversation with composer Sam Adams. He was at NOI to perform sound design for his work Drift and Providence and took some time to sit down with me. In our previous episode, we discussed Drift, but our conversation soon turned to a more general look at music. Here, without further ado, is the rest of our talk. It strikes me as if classical music from living composers is, I don't know if renaissance is the right word, because that implies a rebirth, but it's going through this period of of popularity that I hadn't seen before. You know, Meet the Composer gets funding. Will Robin is able to do a 24-hour symphomania program of 21st century orchestral music on Q2. Q2 exists. Are you still pushing against the same walls that you've been pushing against for years? Or Um, is it getting more and more open? Two things. One, I'm 30, so I haven't been around long enough to really be able to say, you know. um, I mean, I, I... I really started composing professionally when I was, I don't know, 24 or 25, so that's only a couple of years ago, and things weren't that different. <laughs> to answer your first question, um, yes and no. I mean, you, you bring up the idea of the echo chamber, and, and I do surround myself with like-minded people, and I listen to Meet the Composer, and uh, you know, I listen to Will's uh, curated marathon, which is great. And so I think sometimes it's easy to feel like, yeah, we're what we're doing is incredibly relevant and um, maybe there is some kind of renaissance going on. Um, And then I step into, you know, an American orchestra into the lobby and I look at a, you know, program book and I look at what's happening in the season and I feel, no, what we're doing is not relevant at all. Um, And it's still very much, um, you know, a hidden kind of activity and has very, very, very little relevance um, in the kind of larger cultural milieu that we live in in America, um, maybe even in the world. Um, and so when Caroline Shaw collaborates with Kanye West, it's like the most amazing thing and we all go crazy because it's like, yay, we're relevant and it's a fleeting moment and then it's over. Um, you know, I, 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 I go back and forth. I mean, I, I do really, really wish that orchestras in particular were doing more creative programming and programming more contemporary music. Um, and I, I just don't know if that's really going to change. I mean, of course, we, there, there are a couple organizations, you know, in the States that are, are more adventurous, but I, I would say overall classical music is still very, 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 very conservative. Um, how many varies was that? Maybe not but, enough still. But, <laughs> but, but like, you know, the... the I I'm, sometimes I also just feel that you know classical music was never really you know at any point in time the most important thing for people and it's not for everyone and and you know this like utopian idea that all Americans um, you know 
really should care about you know tritone substitutions. Yeah. I don't know. It's not for everyone. So I go back and forth. I go back and forth. But I don't want to sound um, pessimistic because I I do really feel like it it is it is a good time to be. Uh, not just a classical musician, but just a creative musician in general. I think there there are some pretty fascinating people doing really awesome, awesome stuff. So it's a great time for being a creative person in many ways. Hmm. Where do you see your best opportunities coming from? What organizations, or what type of organization? I think it really depends on the kind of project, you know, for for orchestral music. it, you know, it's really hard to work on an orchestral piece in a very kind of creative, messy, down-to-earth way. It's just, it can't work, you know. There's too many people involved. There's very little time. Um, so, you know, if you're a composer of an orchestral work, you really, you do kind of have to fit in this old-school model, which is that you're in your, you know, chamber doing your whatever you're doing, you know, making your weird stew, and then you show up and people perform. Um, I mean, of course, like, you know, NOI is fantastic because there's more of a dialogue and there's more time and there's more of a, an opportunity for me to interact with musicians. But even still, I mean, it's, and I don't mean this as, as a harsh criticism, but it's, it is still very much a kind of, you know, traditional um, model um, for creating work and getting, getting performances off the ground. Um, that being said, like I, I love working with orchestras, and I still want to, I still want to do these kinds of things. I, I mean, I love collaborating across disciplines. Um, I love working with dancers. Um, I love working with visual artists. I love working with lighting designers. Um, so I get really excited about those kinds of projects. Um, usually, there's like way less uh, money, <laughs> and like, and and um, so it's. <laughs> Yeah, but I, so I mean, I really try to diversify my activities, you know, um, because there is something really super satisfying and powerful about working with, you know, a hundred musicians on a stage emoting all at once. I mean, I know this is like a, this is totally cliche to say this, but I mean, it it really is. It's a powerful thing, and and, um, you know, I like doing these kinds of projects, um, but I also, you know, for every kind of, you know, orchestral work that I do, I also try to do a. Um, you know, a weird, like, multimedia thing with a dancer, you know, and a visual artist. Um, <clears throat> I also really love working with younger musicians. I just, I feel like, maybe it's just that when I'm working with younger musicians, there, there tends to be more time because I'm working in kind of like a non-union setting or whatever, like, um, with university. And so so that just lends to more dialogue in general. But, um, yeah, I've always felt that the, the projects where I was engaging younger musicians just felt like, like the final product was like really came out of a dialogue more than just uh, here do this and we'll call it a thing. Um, in fact, I just did a project with the Bienin School uh, contemporary slash early vocal ensemble, which is led by a conductor named Donald Nally. So twenty five singers, um, and they came and did a new piece on uh, on the Music Now series, which is the contemporary music series at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, which I curate. Um, and it was so awesome. It was so awesome, and they were so great and so fun to work with, and they had so many great ideas, and it really, it really felt like a legitimate collaboration. It didn't just feel like, you know, here are some notes, go play them, you know, and let's delegate this whole thing with a middleman called a conductor who's gonna, you know, it, like it, it was, it was awesome, and and uh, 
it felt really good. Who are the composers you're listening to at this point? Even the dead ones. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's a, well, even the dead, that's actually a really good question because I feel like I've, this last year, I've been listening to, I've been listening to a lot of rap. I've been listening to a lot of Mahler, actually, um, mm-hmm. because the piece that I, I just did was based on, uh, this is like the darkest thing in the world, um, but it was based on the texts um, by Frederick Rueckert that Mahler used in Kindertotenlieder, which was a really difficult thing for me to do as a composer, you know, which is to kind of face those texts head on. But it was also, and this also sounds like so composer cliche, but I felt, and I still feel, you know, when I, when I, when I open the New York Times or, you know, the San Francisco Chronicle and I just like see what's happening with not only the Black Lives Matter movement, but um, with gun violence. And, and, and I mean, I don't want this to get too political, but it, it just felt like somehow I had to indirectly kind of address these things. And I, and, and I, I felt that from my perspective, as someone who, who couldn't really address these things head on, because maybe it's not really my place, um, the best way to do it was through um, looking at Mahler and, and, and looking at how he was kind of um, dealing with this, you know, early 20th century reality of, you know, of the death of young people and what it felt like for him as a, as a young man on the cusp of having his first kids. Um, of course, for Mahler, you know, it was all about, I mean, it was, it was, it was, for him, it was a question of fate, you know, it's like this, this happens and you don't know who it's going to happen to and it's someone else's decision, shall we say. Um, and in 2016, it's not a question of fate anymore. It's a question of our own failures, you know, as Americans or as people, you know, not really taking responsibility. Or at least this is how I see it. Maybe I, maybe others may, you know, see a, you know, a school shooting or something as a, as, you know, as a, you know, consequence of fate, but I don't really see it that way. Um, anyway, so, so to kind of get in that, in that space to write light readings, which is a piece that I just did, I had to, um, I had to listen to a lot of Mahler. So that's question. So there's a lot of Mahler. I have actually been listening to a lot of music by a Danish composer named Hans Abrahamsen, who, actually just won the Grammeyer Award for his unbelievably beautiful song cycle called Let Me Tell You, which Barbara Hannigan did. It's just a really beautiful piece. Um, he's very famous. Well, he was, I guess he kind of gained you know, major notoriety in the States for that piece, but um, he's also very well known for um, a piece that he did called Schnee. From, I think it was from 2008, which is an hour-long piece for nine instruments based on Bach canons. Um, but he has all this other really amazing music um, <clears throat> that doesn't, you know, get performed so much in the States, and I've had a really good time uh, in the last couple of months, you know, getting really getting to know his music. So Hans Abrahamsen is another composer. I took a job uh, about a year and a half ago um, with the CSO, which is a composer in residence position, which means that I'm writing music, but really what it means is that I'm, I'm uh, along with the other composer in residence, Elizabeth Oganek, I'm, I'm running and curating the contemporary music series. So a lot of, a lot of my listening 
um, <clears throat> has been has surrounded the composers that we've been featuring. So, um, so I could just name a few of them. We we presented works in this last season. We just finished on Monday by Tristan Perich, really wonderful composer. Kasim Nakvi, who is a wonderful composer and who's also the drummer of a group called Don of Midi. And I've been getting into his head. He's really fantastic. Um, we did a piece by a young Italian composer named Clara Iannata whose music I've really gotten into. She's this kind of post-Lachenmann um, instrumental music concrete composer, and her, her sound world is amazing. It's really beautiful. Um, we did a piece by Ted Hearn, a good friend of mine, who's a really fantastic and imaginative composer, um, who just released a pretty interesting piece called The Source. Uh, uh, and I performed sound design, uh, similar to what I'm doing with Drift, um, for several Sariajo pieces, Kaya Sariajo. Um, so I've been getting really deep in, into her world, not just kind of from a compositional standpoint, but from a performance standpoint, and really kind of understanding um, the electronic processes um, that, you know, support her sound world, um, which actually have been really influential, even though they're very, they're so simple, they're so simple and elegant, but they're, they're, they're so compelling. And so it's been really fantastic to kind of like put her pieces together with some of the CSO musicians. Um, yeah, I don't know. Is that a good enough answer? I've been listening oh, yeah. to a lot of Schubert, a lot of Schubert. Really? I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm writing um, some impromptus for Emmanuel Axe. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I've been I've been getting into these pieces. I mean, I played these pieces when I was a kid, you know, uh, all you know, all the impromptus. And, but it's been really wonderful revisiting them and figuring out what they're all about and figuring out how to write pieces that might somehow interstitially fit between them. So he's going to do one of these club sandwich programs where he does Schubert, Sam, Schubert, Sam, Schubert, Sam. Schubert, oh, that's Sam. really cool. Yeah. So I yeah. always think of like uh, Jeremy Dinks. Ligeti Beethoven mm -hmm. album. Yeah, same same kind of thing. Yeah, that is a phenomenal piece of work that he did. Do you ever end up listening to your dad's music at all? Yeah, actually, I was listening to what was I listening to recently? I feel like I was just what was I listening to his, something of his recently? Oh, it was um, "Light Over Water," a really early tape piece mm -hmm. that he did for Lucinda Childs, which I love. Which actually turned into, um, or parts of it turned into parts of Harmony Lara. Um, so I was listening to that piece when I was driving the other day. I had a long drive from St. Louis up to Chicago, so I put on, I put on Light Over Water. Um, I think that was like 19, I don't want to say like 77, 78. It was a really early work. Was, I think it was before Check Your Loops. But um, yeah, that was, that was a good, a good piece of music to to drive to I feel like we have a like fantastic relationship he likes a lot of what I do he hates a lot of what I do and vice versa so it's like it's a nice little dialogue we have going but which is interesting because I like there's some things that I do in some of my pieces where I'm like proactively like tipping my hat to him and like they'll go completely unnoticed so it's really fascinating to me to, to see how people hear his music and how people hear my music. Like, like there's this big moment in the middle of my violin concerto where there's this like E flat, like totally like West Coast minimalism type. It's like, which is like, 
like, I mean, it's more like Terry Riley than him, but like it's a kind of a rival point at like the emotional core of the violin mm-hmm. concerto. And like, it like, just like went over everyone's head because it wasn't like. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, like, I feel that, like, there, there, there will be rhythmic things that I do that have no kind of harmonic relationship whatsoever to his music, and then there are, are harmonic things that I'll do that have no rhythmic relationship to how they, they exist in his music, and and to me, it's like, oh, I'm, this is so obvious, this is so insanely obvious, and then no one hears it, I'm like, oh. It's really totally fascinating. But yeah, I mean, that's what, I mean, music is interesting because you can have a dialogue simultaneously with 90 different ideas and people and things. And, um, you know, sometimes he's part of the dialogue and sometimes he's not. And just kind of like my life, you know. Both my parents are so, they're so awesome. You know, they're these, like, you know, aging hippies who, who, drove out to the west coast you know in the 60s late 60s early 70s um and you know they they were making music i mean my mom didn't have the fortune to immediately um, start making music when she got to california you know she was working tables at the uh, stanford court hotel for a while and then she she went to um Cal State Hayward and then down to UCSD to to get her master's in composition. But yeah, I mean, they're like, they're these kind of eccentric Berkeley musicians. We've got 98 musicians here. 98 musicians who, so far as I can tell, want to make this their life. Um, And that's a big ask, right? Because most of them want to go into classical and God knows there's 98 musicians in another place right now who feel the exact same way. And that's tough. Um, Yeah, I mean, this is a hard question. I mean... I can, I can answer the the kind of abstract question, which is like, what is music doing right now? And I mean, I think it's doing what it's always done, which is it's providing us with with a, you know a multitude of experiences. Um, it's it's serving a kind of usefulness for various human needs, um, whether those be intellectual or spiritual or um, debaucherous or you know, whatever. Um, where I mean, there's also the kind of other part of your question, which is like, where does it stand right now? Um, that's a really hard question. And mm-hmm. I feel like I don't know enough about, you know, other kinds of music making to really be able to say a grandiose, you know, it's a patently absurd question. No, I, I mean, it's, 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 like a, it's an interesting question, it's, and, it, and it, I, I almost never ask it, and it's, it's a really important thing to ask. And, you know, we get so busy, like, stressing out to make notes and meeting deadlines and working with people and doing this and that, that we forget ultimately what it's about. And, I mean, I think being on the inside, being the person creating the music, it's, it's hard sometimes to remain in line with a kind of perspective, which is that, that it's about providing experience. Um, and I, I forget that because very rarely do I feel like I'm on the other end. I mean, I go to concerts and I go to shows and everything, but I, I feel like I'm such a, an insider now. And whenever I go to a show, I know someone performing and I'm like 
critiquing the production of it and I'm asking myself, well, if I were to do this, how would I do it better? And it's, it's very hard for me to kind of just like step away and, and, um, and really uh, see it from the, from the other side. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, I don't know. This is a really, I just, I'm not giving you anything to work with here. It's I don't just, know. I think it's like a, such a hard question. I think but, that's a good answer. It's yeah. just, it's, it's, to me, it's a really, you know, because when I asked Jim Underkoffler, I said, yeah. Where, where's classical music today? You know, a lot of people say it's dying, and he mm-hmm. responds, it's not dying. Mm-hmm. It's just that the structures that we have for it are dying, and we're re-envisioning it. And I just think that question of where we stand today is, that it feels really relevant, and it's not. It's the same question that everyone has been asking since the dawn of music. Well, so maybe the question is is not where does it stand, but how is it adapting you know mm-hmm. because i mean i think that the i think the functions of music are i think they kind of remain the same the question is you know as culture shifts and as culture develops how how are musicians and audiences and presenters um, able to accommodate new experiences given the like extremely volatile you know state of you know economics and funding and, you know, how um, to prevent technology from pushing musical activities in a kind of unfavorable direction. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that you, you do see outside of the institutional realm, particularly of classical music, that there's a little, there's a little more flexibility and ingenuity going on um, with kind of modular ensembles. There's certainly a lot of flexibility that you see outside of organizations um, that you don't necessarily see in, in you know, large cruise ships, so to speak. I think that the 21st century musician, well, I wouldn't say necessarily the 21st century musician, but the 21st century classical musician is required to have more of a kind of diversified skill set. You need to be able to play, but you also need to be an advocate. Um, think that being able to teach is really important and I don't mean in a kind of like traditional sense of the word and that you know you it's really important to teach viola to someone who's two generations younger than you but but to to talk to uh, a neophyte or to talk to you know a, a lay person um, about what you do in an intelligent and articulate way to teach um, that's also in- extremely important I think it's also important to be and I know this is kind of a spurious thing to say, but to be flexible with the kinds of music that you play. I mean, that's not necessarily true. Certainly the, the kind of bread and butter orchestral violinist persona is, you know, that, that person still exists who's a complete expert at nailing Don Juan passages or whatever. But you do see a lot of classical musicians who are stretching their musical abilities you know, across genre borders, even though I don't really like the idea of genre, but you see a lot of that. I think, yeah, I mean, I think it just takes a, a, to kind of boil down what I'm saying, I I think because the the landscape is shifting so rapidly, I think really what it takes is for musicians to be more flexible and more nimble. Maybe that was always the case. I don't know. I didn't, I wasn't making music in like 1837. So, I mean, maybe that was the case then. We're just, I certainly feel like in my own creative life I need to be I need to be like a chameleon and adapt to 
you know, new contexts very quickly because there, there's, there are so many of them and they're always different. Thanks once again to Sam for taking the time to talk with me while I was here at NOI. In our next episode, I will sit down with Teddy Abrams, the music director of the Louisville Orchestra and the Brit Festival Orchestra. He's here at NOI leading the orchestra in a program of Debussy, Ravel, and Mahler. Most people, if you ask them, what would you do today if you could do anything? Not generally throughout the population across you know, the U.S. of 350 million people. Would they say, oh, I, the, well, I'd go see the orchestra. But a lot of them would say, I'd go see music. I'd go see a show. If somebody had a choice of anything to do today and their favorite band was in town, they'd probably go. What I'm trying to get people to realize is that an orchestra is exactly like that, or at least it should be. If you've missed any of our previous episodes, including Sam Adams' discussion of Drift in Providence and former Philadelphia Orchestra president and CEO Jim Undercoffler's take on music in 2016, you can find them on iTunes, Google Play Music, or SoundCloud. On the first two, just search National Orchestral Institute and subscribe. Or you can follow our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com slash National Orchestral Institute. The National Orchestral Institute and Festival is presented each year by the Clarice in College Park, Maryland. The Clarice is helping to build the future of the arts by educating, training, and presenting the next generation of creative innovators. With performances year-round, there's always something to experience at the Clarice. Check out our schedule by visiting theclarice.umd.edu or by finding us on Facebook under The Clarice. Thanks as always for listening.